Well, I feel like I have to say Merry Christmas. Everyone else is doing it. Merry Christmas. It is so good to be here with you uh, this morning. And I pray God's blessings on our time together. We're going to be in multiple places in scripture today as we look at prophecies. You'll notice that the Advent candle is lit this morning. We lit all the candles actually on Wednesday when we had our Vesper service. And I explained what each of the candles represented. But for the the last candle that would be officially lit this morning would be the Christ candle. It's the candle of prophecy, which would be appropriate this morning because we will speak of the prophecies of Jesus Christ. But I want us to just self-reflect here for a moment. Are you in awe of what we celebrate today? I know that it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed with the commercial side of the season. But are you in awe of what happened? Are you in awe of what, every, what God had to do, what God accomplished for this to take place for which we celebrate? As we celebrate the birth of Christ, I pray that we would allow God's word to reinvigorate our, our heart, to reset our spirits and mind on him. That we would be in a sense of awe for who he is and for what he accomplished for this to take place. There are over 450 prophecies in the Old Testament directed to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he would do thereafter. The amazing side of that is Jesus fulfilled all of these prophecies in his lifetime. And when we look at the statistical analysis, this is not going to be a class today, um, though I know you would be eager to listen a statistical analysis of all of these prophecies being fulfilled in one man in his lifetime exactly as prophecy described would be staggering. I do want to give you an example of that this morning. Uh, You've probably read an article, perhaps you've heard it on an occasion such as this, There was a professor at Westmont College that calculated the probability of one man fulfilling eight major prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah. He had 12 of his classes compute the data, representing 600 students. 12 classes did that. Even among the most skeptical students, when they calculated this prophecy, when they calculated the probability that it happened, they were so conservative that it was a unanimous agreement that the numbers were correct. The professor took that back and he made it even more conservative and he encouraged other scientists to look at his data to make sure that he was being fair. Finally, he submitted his work for review to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation. And upon examination, they verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate concerning the subject matter. So after examining eight of the 456 prophecies, 
they conservatively estimated that that the chance of one million, one man fulfilling all eight prophecies in his lifetime, exactly as the prophecy had declared, was one in ten to the seventeenth power. So that's ten with seventeen zeros after it. One chance in that for eight prophecies. He went on to give an illustration of what that might look like. He said, if you would take a silver dollar, not the the small ones that we have today, but the, the old ones, the big silver dollars, and if you were to take them, that number, and cover the state of Texas, that's 248,000 square miles of silver dollars. And you would continue to do that until they were two feet deep all over the state of Texas. You would assign one person to go out into all of those silver dollars to pick up one at random and to mark it and put it back wherever they chose. You would then blindfold one person, put him right smack dab in the middle of Texas and tell them to walk as far as they wanted to go in any direction as long as they stayed in Texas. And at some point at random, they were to bend down and pick up one silver dollar. And if that was yours that you marked... That's the same chance that one man could fulfill these eight prophecies in his lifetime. See, the numbers are staggering. And as staggering as those are, listen, that was eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 456. And so when we look at these, we... We should be amazed about what God has done. But listen to what the professor concluded. Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That's from a person like you and me. And I understand that you can make statistics say anything you want. But we're going to go to God's Word. We're just going to look at three prophecies this morning. We'll look at the prophecy of place, the prophecy of bloodline, and the prophecy of birth. So the first passage is Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2. This is, in your outline, if you're filling it out, is the prophecy of place. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. There are estimates that reveal that the population of Bethlehem would be around a thousand people at the time of Christ's birth. Uh, Bethlehem was about six miles uh, south of Jerusalem. And at first glance, if you look at a prophecy such as this, it, it might not seem that astonishing. The significant point in this prophecy is it narrows the birth of the Messiah to one small town in all the world. 
That's pretty significant. The, um, I know geographically we really can't make a, a comparison, but the town of Sneed is about a thousand people. So we can kind of relate to the town of Sneed. And I'm going to use that as an illustration. Uh, <coughs> from a modern perspective, if we were to go back to 1300 AD, and if Sneed existed at that time, we could say this, in the town of Sneed, Alabama, a leader will be born. And, and that's really a, a huge uh, prophecy. It's a very broad prophecy because we're not saying when he would be born or what kind of a leader he would be. But 700 years prior to Christ being born in Bethlehem, that's what the prophet said. So without a specific date, without a position of leadership, really my prophecy would not be that great. However, we cannot miss the critical part of the prophecy of Micah 5.2. It says, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. The phrase ancient of days is used four times in God's word. Three times it's used in Daniel, and it's used to describe God as existing before days existed. And then here in Micah 5, 2, it's speaking of the future ruler of Israel that existed before days existed. So in this, Micah is declaring the same ancient of days described in Daniel as the same ancient of days who is going to be the Messiah. We could say that Micah is declaring God is the Messiah who will be born in Bethlehem. Now, the second passage that we'll look at, we'll get to in just a moment. If you want to turn toward there, it would be Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament. This is number two in your outline. It's the prophecy of line. The prophecy of line. Now, as prophecies provide more detail, when they come true, there's greater certainty about what was said. So we could say generally, oh, someone will be born in the town of Sneed. You could say that. Well, of course someone's going to be born in the town of Sneed. So the greater detail you get, the more certain you were that the prophecy was accurate. An article by Don Stewart Describe the, the lineage of the Messiah and how very narrow it was as we can take comfort and certainty in God's word. Genesis 9.26 predicts that he will come from the line of Shem. Those of us who have read God's word knows that God eliminated all of creation with a worldwide flood except for Noah, his three sons, and their wives. One of the three sons is Shem. So you can follow from that moment in history, you have eliminated two-thirds of the population of the earth by following that one line of Shem to the birth of Jesus Christ. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 foretells that he will come from the, the family of Abram. Now, Abram was nine generations after Shem. So Shem was great, 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 great grandpa. 
So that many years, all the families that occurred in the line of Shem have now been eliminated. And we're looking at Abraham only or Abram only. Genesis 26.3 prophesies that he will come from the line of Isaac, which was one of Abraham's or Abram's eight sons. Again, narrowing, narrowing down. Isaac had 12 sons. Genesis 49.10 says he will come from the tribe of Judah. Isaiah 11.1 predicts the Messiah would come from the house of Jesse, which was nine generations after Judah. Jesse had eight sons, the the youngest of whom was David. And we see in in Samuel um, 7, 12 through 13, God says he will establish his kingdom forever through the line of David. So we get narrower and narrower. So the people of God who knew the prophecies of God, though they did not know when the the Messiah would come, they knew where he would come and they knew from what line he would come from. Now, if I genuinely believe scripture in that day and time, I would probably make every effort to hang out in Bethlehem, to be looking for the birth of the king of the Jews, the one who would be the Messiah, the anointed one of God. That would be my inclination. I'd be looking for any sign that that would line up with prophecy that that would occur. Matthew 1, 1 says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17 says, to all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we know from scripture that Jesus is from the line of Abraham. We know that he is from the tribe of Judah. He know, we know that he is from Jesse. We know that he's from David and that he would be born in Bethlehem. It gives us a great picture of what we should be looking for in, in prophecy as it's fulfilled. It's very specific. But could we prophesy something similar? Let's go back to the town of Sneed. Sneed is 96% Caucasian, so you can kind of see the, the heritage of, of that group of people. The most common surnames are Smith, Williams, and Johnson. So today we could predict that there would be a boy born to the Johnson family sometime in the next 700 years and probably would be accurate. We would probably come up with like, say, wow, you're really good. 700 years and there was actually a boy born in Sneed. So we look at that and, but there's something here that we would miss. See, we, we could not say, but he would be from the ancient of days. And we could not actually verify that he would be a leader. We kind of have to wait to see him grow up to see what kind of a leader, if he became a leader at all. So we'd always be looking back at the prophecy saying, well, does it really match up? Does it really match up? So there's one more prophecy I want us to look at this morning, and that's in Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah is about the middle of your Bible. Isaiah 7.14, this is the prophecy of birth, if you're following in your outline, the prophecy of birth. Isaiah 
Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In the last prophecy we looked at, the more narrow it got, the more detail we had, the greater the certainty. Well, now as we look at this, this isn't just more specific. It's impossible to occur. So now we're looking for an impossibility to happen to verify that the king came. There is a debate about this. So we know from scripture that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, born to a virgin. The debate says, does the scripture really say that a virgin will bear a son? And the Hebrew word that's used here in, in Isaiah seven fourteen is Alma. And that's used to describe a girl of marrying age. The debate surrounding this would be critical because on one hand, you have an impossibility that would confirm the birth of the Messiah. And on the other hand, you would have a young girl giving birth. And so it does make a difference as we look to this. There was a Jewish scholar, his name was Java Glaser, that said this. In the few verses of scripture where Alma is appearing, the word clearly denotes a young woman who is not married but is of age. Although Alma does not implicitly denote purity, it is never used in the scriptures to describe a young, presently married woman. He goes on to say this, it's important to remember that in the Bible, a young Jewish woman of marriageable age was always presumed to be virtuous. If she was not, she would have another title. And that's just the background for you and me. But why is this important for us? Why is it important for us to understand and to believe? First of all, the prophet Isaiah said that this child would be born of a virgin. But if we also looked in the book of Matthew chapter 1, God says that this child would be born in a supernatural way. It's only through the virgin birth that we could receive the divine son of God without a sinful nature here on this earth. It's only the virgin born sinless son of God that could later die for our sins. That fulfills God's plan of redemption that we've looked at previously, that his plan was established before the foundation of the earth. This becomes more astonishing to us as we sit in the presence of God. Not only did he record these things in God's word for us to see, but he established these things before Genesis 1 even began. He knew that in creating you and me, he would also have to create a savior because we are hopeless and helpless in our sin. And to be restored and reconciled to God alone, it's only by his hand that that could be accomplished. In the end, it does not matter that there is a statistical analysis. 
It does not matter that there is a mathematical certainty that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, God the Son, who came to die. What matters is this. You and I trust and believe God's word because he declares it in his word. We don't need the the world to, to fortify our faith. We need to believe in God and allow him to fortify our faith. So as we read the account of Christ's birth, we know that this was not just a baby who was born in Bethlehem, who was named Jesus. He is the ancient of days who came at a specific time in a specific way to a specific place for a specific purpose. We declared this as the angels did, that he was born to save the world. That's Jesus. That's why, this is why we celebrate the birth of the Christ, the anointed one of God, God the Son. And as we declare that this morning, we know that he is Emmanuel, God with us. We know that he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that he is our redeemer. We know that he is our hope. We know that he is our savior. And this is why we worship him. This is why we celebrate today. I love to give gifts. I love to see the, the, the eyes of the children who receive the gifts. I love to see the surprise in the mornings. I love the special meals and the fellowship. I love family. But I'm in awe of this. If you have not done so already this morning, I am going to take the liberty to do it right now as we close. I would like to read to you the account of the birth of Jesus Christ. If you want to follow along in your your Bible, that's fine. But if you want to close your eyes and listen to God's word, knowing that he has planned this from before the beginning of the world, that he did it for you, and just to sit in awe of him. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2. Verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of the eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. We go on to know that there's no other name by which man can be saved. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He is the redeemer. He is our hope. He is our savior. I pray this morning that you would receive the gift if you have not done so already. The greatest gift of all is salvation through Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can offer it to those of us who need it. Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means we all need a Savior. So this morning, I just want to bring the invitation to you That if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Messiah, today would be an awesome day to say yes. Cry out to him while he can be found. Know him. I say your Christmases will never be the same. Your life will never be the same. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I'm going to ask Ryan and Mike to come up as as they lead us in the time of invitation this morning. And the invitation is simple. The invitation is, I I need a savior. (laughs) Help me know him today. And that's why we're here. We We want you to know him. We want you to experience the peace that we know, that we have. We want you to experience the hope and the purpose of life in Christ. Maybe this morning your response is just to worship as you stand in awe of who he is. Let's do that together. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Lord, it is astonishing what you have accomplished on our behalf. I cannot fathom the kind of love that you must have for us, that you would create us knowing that you would have to die for us as well that you gave your only son as an expression of your love. And Lord, I pray that we would express our love to you as we surrender our lives to your authority and as we surrender our lives to follow you, Lord, that you would be glorified. 
I pray that those who are here today and those who are listening would experience your peace and your hope, your presence and your power this morning as they seek your face. May we worship you. May we be in awe of who you are. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.